Well, hail brothers, this is Didact, and this is Didactic Mind, episode 101, the three-way deep state civil war. Uh, many thanks, as always, to all of my long-time subscribers, my long-time listeners, my subscribers on the site, my subscribers at Podbean. Uh, hey, I actually got it right. I didn't say SoundCloud this time. Hallelujah. Uh, it's uh, always a pleasure to be speaking with you on uh, these subjects, and I appreciate people's patience. I know that I don't do these as regularly as I should, but, you know, standing around or sitting around, in my case, largely standing around for an hour, because uh, I like to stand when I do these things is it takes time and it takes effort and it takes uh, planning. But I know there are people who eagerly await these episodes, so I appreciate your patience. I thank you for sticking by with me. And I know I gave you guys a lot of content um, previously with the domain query episodes that I, that I recorded, uh, which was a lot of fun, actually, uh, last week. But the, the events on the ground are moving so quickly and piling up so fast that it's like it's hard to understand how everything is shaping up um it's hard to keep track of things and as such whenever i come up with an idea for a podcast it just a few days later something else comes up and then you know it's impossible to 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 keep on track but there is something that i saw on uh, an episode of the duran uh, with the two Greek gentlemen, Alex Christophorou and Alexander Mercurius, which I thought was worth delving into. This was their latest Duran episode, in which they had the most excellent Robert Barnes uh, on for like three hours of geopolitical discussion. It was fascinating stuff, because Robert Barnes is a very, very, very smart man, very intelligent, very talented, very skilled, and uh, he's obviously a legal scholar. So, in I forget exactly where he said it, and I've been trying to zip through the podcast and figure out exactly what the point in time was that he said what he said. But he was talking about a note that he sent to Alex and Alexander about how the deep state in the U.S. is fracturing and fragmenting along factional lines. And he said that there are three major factions coming out of all of this. And the analysis that he presented was very, very compelling. And I wanted to expand upon it a little bit. I hope I don't get what he said wrong. But I, if I have, then my apologies. Uh, I will link to the episode of the Duran in the description box so you can see for yourself. If I have gotten something wrong in the analysis, again, that's my fault. Uh, but I want to take what he said and kind of run with it a bit in my own direction rather than necessarily just repeat what Robert Barnes said. So if you look at what's going on globally with geopolitics right now, and if you use the Banderistan War as kind of a template or a lens, or not even that, a microcosm, a case study, if you will, of the way that the deep state is reacting to what's going on globally, you're going to find that there are actually indeed different factions of the deep state and they all have competing interests and competing problems. Now the way Robert Barnes broke it down is as follows. You have the neo-clowns and I mean they're complete lunatics. Uh, you know, Jews, socialists, secularists, 
all three kind of put together in, in one package of insanity and stupidity at the same time. But not just Jewish socialist neoclowns. Uh, you also have neoliberals who are, you know, they, are, they embrace left-wing social policies, but they're very much in favor of war. They're very much in favor of globalism, spreading uh, the evil of globalism worldwide. They have no problem with going to war to, to impose their vision of uh, society on top of all of us. And then you have the neoconservatives who are basically unreconstructed Trotskyites. And, oddly enough, Jews as well, just like Trotsky was. Um, these, this faction is the faction in charge largely at State Department. And they are the ones largely running the show, or they were up until fairly recently. And there are quite a few of them at the Department of Defense as well, of course. But they were, up until fairly recently, the most influential voices calling for endless war in 404. They wanted to see Ukraine uh, supplied with infinite amounts of weaponry and funding and to bleed Russia dry and then to depose the neo-Tsar Vladimir Putin and break Russia up into smaller, therefore much more easily controlled statelets and strip Russia of its natural resources. This is not new. I mean, this is a project that's been ongoing since uh, basically the Wolfowitz Doctrine was released in the early 90s. This is nothing new. This is 30 years worth of really stupid, horrendously bad thinking. And it's very much entrenched within the culture and the context of the State Department. The second faction that Barnes describes is the Realpolitik faction. The side that basically says, this is failing and we should never have gotten involved in the first place. And while it's nice and all to support Ukraine against Russia and we want Russia weakened, this is not the way to go about it. And this war is a miserable disaster for us. Uh, we should find an off-ramp as fast as possible. This seems to be the prevailing view of a number of uniformed people, not the civilians who lead them, but the uniformed people in the Department of Defense, including, oddly enough, General Mark Milley, for whom most of the people that I know have very little respect, and rightly so, I think. Uh, I, in my personal opinion, Mark Milley has been utter disaster as the chief of staff of the U.S. Army. And Mark Milley is the guy who is behind the introduction of essentially CrossFit as the basic fitness test for Army recruits and for Army personnel. And it's just, I mean, so much about it is stupid and wrong. But that's the subject of another post. I mean, I've written quite a bit about it. Lieutenant Colonel Tom Kratman, who knows actually quite a lot more about it than I do, which, by the way, is not a very high bar to clear. Uh, I would say your average rock on an army base knows more about it than I do. So, you know, if I can see how stupid it is, then that rock can definitely see how stupid it is. But... Lieutenant Colonel Kratman is vastly better than any rock. He is, in fact, deeply experienced in this stuff. He understands it very well. And he can tell you it's a, it's a disaster. But his perspective on it was very refreshing. He said, look, don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. This is going to go the way of all the other stupid bad ideas that have ever come through the army and good riddance to bad rubbish, really. I completely believe him. I see no reason to object to that. 
So that's the Realpolitik wing, which is basically saying the Kissingerite type wing, which is saying, um, yeah, this is not working out very well. We need to understand that we're in no position to dictate terms and we need to find an exit like fast. And then there's the economic wing, which is neither, not necessarily specifically pro or anti-war. It's just, it's all about the Benjamins. They care about the money. And this is where the Fed and the Treasury Department come in. And you see the reactions of the Federal Reserve, which is, it's not a branch of the government. Let's be really clear about this. The Federal Reserve is a private cartel made up of the banking system. It is not answerable to the U.S. government. They pretend that they are, but they're not. The Federal Reserve Act makes it very clear that Congress cannot interfere in the independence of the Federal Reserve beyond a certain point. And the Fed has always played up this idea that, oh, it must be fully independent of, of government oversight in order to do what it needs to do to save the banking system. It's all nonsense. I mean, the Federal Reserve exists for the banks to enrich the banks. And that's exactly what it's done. It is a money transfer mechanism from the people to the banks and to the people who lead the banks. I can say this as somebody who worked in the banking system for eight years, uh, more than that actually, and who you know, made good money while I was doing it. Not, not huge amounts, but I made a decent salary. Um, but I was always, you know, a foreign agent within the banking system. I was a foreign organism in that body. I mean, it was only a matter of time, really, before I was kicked out. And good riddance to me, you know, in, in the process. I'm, I'm glad I never have to go back to that. Oh, I hope, I hope I never have to go back to that. By the way, um, while we're off topic a bit, if you want a really good book on the subject of what banking culture is like, go read Swimming with Sharks. It's a book that a friend of mine recommended to me. It's basically an, a behavioral psychologist looking, or behavioral psychologist slash journalist, looking at the psychology that motivates people in the banking industry, coming away with some really just horrifying conclusions about how it's not just a few bad apples in the system that have ruined everything, it's the system itself that is rotten. So anyway, you have these three camps within the overall deep state swamp. And the, the three-way deep state civil war really comes down to the competing interests and powers of these three entities. Let's take the neo-clowns first, because they are the most obvious and disastrously failed bunch out of all of these. The neo-clowns have always been a very incestuous group. If you look at them, there aren't that many of them, but they hold astonishing amounts of power. Relative to the overall number of such people, they, um, they have amassed amongst themselves a truly staggering amount of power and influence. It is not a coincidence that a very large number of them are Jews. And I'm not saying that to be anti-Semitic, because I'm not. I mean, I support the right of the state of Israel to exist. I am quite pro-Jewish in you know, pretty much everything I say and do. I have no arguments with Jews in general. But I get very annoyed when Jews decide to um, interject or interfere in the affairs of other nations. And that's exactly what they've done repeatedly. It's, now, it's not really the religious Jews either. I mean, that's the funny thing. It's the secular Jews who are causing the problem. Um, if you look at the Kagan family, this is where it gets really interesting. And you track back the influence of the Kagans. 
If you look at Frederick and Robert Kagan and their respective wives, you will see just how deeply tied into the State Department they really are. Go look up Victoria Newland and her biography. Go look up um, John Kirby and what he's been up to. Go look up Anthony Blinken and uh, what's his name? Sullivan, Jake Sullivan, I think. Go look up these people and go look up what they've done and where they've been and the think tanks that they have been part of. This is an incestuous, deeply entrenched network of interests and people that go all the way back to Frank, Frank, uh, Frank Fukuyama, Francis Fukuyama's, you know, the end of history and all the rest of it, and all this you know, bloviating about the American century. Well, it's not been the American century. It's been the American three decades. It's like, you know, the, the thousand-year Reich. Um, yeah, that lasted how long? It's been about that. And the reason why it's been so short-lived is because of the American insistence at the kind of push and back uh, at the at the uh, instigation, as it were, of the neo-clowns themselves in using force to to create a so-called rules-based international order. Now, the rules-based international order is absolute garbage. The whole idea is that you do what America wants, otherwise America shoots you. That's basically what it is. But it, it goes a bit deeper than that. I mean, the roots of American power really in the modern day come from the petrodollar. It comes from the fact that in the 1970s, uh, when Nixon decoupled the United States from gold, decoupled the dollar from gold, technically, he inevitably caused a soft default because when you do that, you essentially create a paper money standard and that jacks up inflation massively. And the result of very high inflation is, of course, uh, uh, the, the destruction of the value of debt. I mean, deflation, uh, inflation is effectively a soft form of default because it, what you're doing is you're destroying the real value of that financial instrument of, of a loan when the real rate of interest is negative, you're essentially being paid to borrow, which is dumb from any financier's perspective, which is why real financial professionals, not the joke ones that you find in most banks these days, but real ones, understand and fear inflation. And they understand how dangerous real uh, rampant inflation actually is in the economy. So when Nixon did that, and you saw the end of the Bretton Woods system. Inflation ran rampant and fuel shortages began to become a very serious problem. Nixon essentially made a deal with the Saudis and said, you will sell us oil. We will pay you in dollars. You will then invest those dollars in American treasuries and American weapon systems. We will protect you from your enemies. Both parties benefited enormously from this arrangement. America got crude oil and price stability followed shortly thereafter. It is thanks to that deal, the petrodollar deal, that subsequently William Casey under the Reagan administration was able to go to the Saudis because of his deep relationship with them and convince the Saudis to essentially double their oil production 
and thereby crash world oil prices. And that was a deliberate strategy designed to inflict harm upon the Soviet Union. It worked brilliantly. I mean, the Soviets went broke in the 1980s because they couldn't sell their oil on global markets at a profit. Their economy was too structurally weak. And that oil price crash over time destroyed their ability to sustain any kind of industrial base, any kind of monetary advantage. The Saudis got the full protection of the American hegemon in the form of arms and armaments that kept their enemies at bay, particularly in the Shiite world. And Iran and Saudi Arabia are mortal enemies and have been for a very long time. And it ensured that the house of the, the, the house of the, well, basically the house of Saud would be able to maintain an iron grip on power. So it was a very beneficial deal for all parties concerned and everybody was happy. But the result was that 30 years later, more or less, well, 20 years later, really, when the Berlin Wall fell and when the Soviet Union collapsed, the United States and being left as like the only global hegemonic power had at its disposal uh, complete control over the markets that really matter. It had at its disposal the single most important economic weapon, you know, in the entire world, the US dollar. Because everything was indexed to the US dollar, because everything that matters comes to really derives from the price of physical resources. And that's a hard truth we've been learning over the last, you know, six months or so, that true power does not necessarily come from the barrel of a gun. It actually comes from the people who make the stuff that goes into the gun. And those are the people who have physical resources. America picked a fight with the world's commodity superpower and is now paying the price. And the result is a war that America is losing and losing extremely badly. The world has failed to understand that you do not pick a fight with a country that produces enough oil to power the world's largest economies. And that's exactly what Russia does. I mean, the Russian oil that comes through those pipelines, through the Druzhba pipeline, through Nord Stream 1 uh, gas pipeline, through the uh, Yamal Europe pipeline, through all of these various networks of uh, gas and oil and, you know, energy conduits that go into Europe itself, these sources of energy provide power to all of Europe's industries, all of the ones that matter. And Germany's industries in particular are tools specifically to use Ural's crude oil. That grade of oil, that very reliable sulfur content, which is very uniform, doesn't really vary much, uh, doesn't really change much over time, that's the stuff that their factories need in order to produce things and produce them well. That is the true definition of power. That is what the United States had in 1991. Ever since then, the United States has insisted on wasting that power through enormous amounts of money printing, backed by effectively nothing, hollowing out its industrial base by offshoring everything to China, and embarking on pointless wars of foreign adventurism, basically trying to impose American democratic liberal values on every country in the world. This was always going to end badly. It ended badly for Athens during the Peloponnesian Wars. It ended badly for every empire that tried to export its ideology through force. 
it will end badly for the United States. It already is ending badly. But this is the source of neocon power. They thought that at the end of the Cold War, America's vision had triumphed completely and totally. That Reagan had won the Cold War by pushing American democratic values, by using America's superior economic system, by bringing the evil empire to its knees, and by essentially forcing a settlement. Now, he did force a settlement. That's true. He did. Reagan deserved the Nobel Peace Prize for what he did, but he never, of course, never got it. Gorbachev got it instead because supposedly he was a great peacemaker. Um, many of former Soviets would beg to disagree on that subject. But anyway, the point is that these neo-clowns and neoliberals that grew out of them essentially came to believe in their own invincibility. They came to think that they came to view everything in terms of an ideological lens. The defining moment of their worldview was the collapse of communism on basically Christmas Eve 1991, or 26th, I think. so Boxing Day 1991, if you take uh, limey standards uh, on the subject. So they viewed this as like the most important event of all time, their, their, you know, their, their great triumph, their watershed moment. And from there, they based their entire worldview on the idea that American superiority was inevitable, that American productive capacity was absolute and infinite, and that American ideology made sense for everybody. And that is the mode of thinking that you see going, you know, over and over again throughout all neo-clown thinking. They always think the same way. They always have this completely ideological view of the world, that everything can be achieved through force. And everything can be achieved through economic blockades. And America's power is infinite, or effectively infinite, because no one else can possibly compare. No one else has the economic strength. No one else has the economic might. No one else has the military technology that can surpass America's. Well, those assumptions have now been severely tested in the actual crucible of war, as they always are, and they've been found to be severely lacking. And that's where the second wing of the deep state comes in. This is the Kissingerite or Realpolitik type wing, who understand that the war in 404 is going very, very badly, that it events are threatening to spin out of control. And while they are not necessarily moral in any way, because you need to understand very clearly, nobody in the deep state swamp is moral. They all operate from a principle of, or from a point of view, I should say, of power. They all want to secure maximum amounts of power. And that's their guiding star. They don't see the world in terms of good or bad, uh, you know, light and dark. They see everything in terms of how can I get more power for myself? That's really how they view everything. The Kissingerite wing of the deep state is not interested in doing the right thing because they don't have that concept of morality. Henry Kissinger himself is not a moral man in any way. But they do understand that there are limits to what they can do, what America can achieve. And they understand that there are certain entanglements which are too big and too difficult even for them. They are not blinded by ideology the way that the neoclowns are. This is key to understanding the neoclowns themselves. Neoclowns and neolibs have a pathological hatred of Russia. And again, it comes back to the fact that so many of them are unreconstructed Trotskyites. 
the Trotskyites were kicked out of Bolshevik Russia uh, at the point of a gun. Trotsky himself ended up with an ice pick through his eye in, I think, Mexico. And they have never, ever forgiven the Russians, the Russian people, the Russian government for what, for what was done to their fathers and their grandfathers. Gonzalo Lira, I don't particularly like his content these days, but he did a great episode before he was arrested and detained by the SBU, um, Služba Bezopasnosti Ukraine, uh, Security Service of Ukraine, basically, um, which he, in which he detailed the history of um, Victoria Newland's family. And he pointed out that if you go back to her grandfather, he was originally a cobbler of some kind, I think, in Bessarabia. Well, whereas Bessarabia, it's essentially where Transnistria, Moldova, and Odessa, Nikolaev, you know, that whole belt uh, is today. And he fled, he fled that area to escape Russian anti-Jewish pogroms. That's exactly why they hate Russia so much. They see Russia as being this horrendous anti-Semitic country which absolutely hates Jews, and uh, kicked out their forefathers, and they've always wanted vengeance on Russia ever since. That is why they are so ideologically blinded to what Russia is today. They still see Russia as this evil empire that needs to be broken up, brought to heel, destroyed. The Russian people need to be taught a terrible lesson. They don't understand that Russia's actually changed uh, quite a bit, and Russia today is actually a modern, liberal, secular type of state, country, uh, liberal in the good sense, not in the, you know, constantly whining, complaining sense, not in the crazy beliefs and irrational things sense, but liberal in the sense that you can live quite freely in Russia today. If you want to go and criticize the government, you can do that. You can actually still do that, believe it or not. As long as you aren't receiving funding from a foreign country, you can sit in Russia and you can criticize the government. You can do it pretty openly, actually, as long as you aren't violent about it. You can distribute information within Russia saying, I don't like Putin, I don't like what he's doing with the country, I don't like the United Russia Party, I want to do something else. I don't believe in what these people are doing. That's okay. Believe it or not, that's actually true. I was there in Russia in 2019. Uh, so 2018 was when the pension protests kicked off. So late 2018 when there was a you know, massive, like 50,000 plus people marched in the streets, pissed off about pensions. Uh, I was there in 2020 when they had the constitutional election. Yes, there's a gerrymandering. Yes, there's election fraud. Yeah, okay. I'm not going to argue with that. I agree. I mean, Russia is a, um, is, is very much a kind of a, a rigged democracy in that respect. Yeah, okay, fine. Show me one democracy in the Western world that isn't rigged. I mean, it is laughable when I listen to Western elites talking about how we hold dear to democratic values and the will of the people. I'm like, the EU, for instance, is one of the most anti-democratic institutions I've ever seen. It's explicitly designed to thwart the will of the people. So please don't waste my time lecturing me about the benefits of democracy. Democracy is a joke in bad taste as far as I'm concerned. So these people in the deep state the neo-clowns are ideologically driven. The Kissinger wing doesn't share that problem. They have different problems. They 
still want to maintain American supremacy, but they want to do it in such a way that they don't mind throwing long-term allies under the bus. They really do share, uh, I believe it was Kissinger himself who said it, this point of view that America does not have long-term allies, only long-term interests. And Kissinger, as far as I know, definitely said, it is dangerous to be America's friend, but to be, uh, sorry, to be, to be, um, uh, it is dangerous to be America's enemy, but to be America's friend is lethal. Something along those lines. And I think he's absolutely right. To be America's friend is lethal, particularly when the Kissingerite wing decides on a particular course of action. They will very happily throw anyone under the bus to achieve long-term American objectives of global hegemonic status, of absolute economic authority and supremacy. And it is the Kissingerite wing that's looking at this 404 war and going, holy crap, I mean, we have severely miscalculated. They're looking at American weapons failing miserably in 404. They're looking at javelins and N-laws and Stinger missiles and... M777 howitzers and even these multiple launch rocket systems, the HIMARS and the satellite imagery that they're feeding the Ukrainians and the switchblade suicide drones and, the, and on and on and on and on and on. The British are looking at all of the things that they have sent the Banderites and they're realizing none of it works. Um, the same with the French, the same with the Germans, the same with everybody. They're looking at it going, uh, oh, we've got a really big problem. The missile defense systems that they sent Ukraine, those aren't working. The, uh, the, the helicopters that they bought from, you know, other Soviet countries and sent over, they aren't working. Even the T-72 and, uh, tanks that the Polish sent over, they aren't working. The very, very expensive Western-style weapons that they sent over, they aren't working. They're looking at all of the assumptions that the U.S. made going into the war, and they're saying, we miscalculated horribly. We made a big mistake. We thought that Ukraine could resist. Uh, they're not resisting. We thought that the Russian military was disorganized and inept. It's none of those things. We thought that the Ukrainians, after an initial shock, could potentially hold off Russia, and we thought that um, the economic sanctions would break the Russian economy. That didn't happen. We need to reassess really, really quickly. The neo-clown reaction to these failures is to double and triple and quadruple down. Because again, they're completely ideologically blinkered. They can't see anything outside of their ideology. The Kissingerites aren't restricted like that. They are able to see that these actions have consequences that they didn't expect. And they're willing and able to react and adapt but they're not able to overcome because they're still fighting this other, you know, dead weight of the neo-clowns who are holding them back from, from, from getting an off-ramp. So the Kissingerite wing, you'll find largely in the Department of Defense, but not completely. There are still lots and lots of neo-libs, neo-clowns, just complete idiots in that group uh, who are tied into the Institute for the Study of War and to the Kagan-related think tanks and the John Bolton way of thinking, uh, the Mike Pompeo type of thinking, and they still believe that a uh, a military victory of some kind is possible in 404. It's just not. But these people are the ones who agree with Kissinger when he says, we've got two months to find an off-ramp, a solution. And while it is good to you know force Russia to a stalemate and whatever, and we believe in democracy, we believe in freedom, we believe in standing up for states' rights and sovereignty and Ukraine and 
rah, 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 and all this good stuff, they're also quietly admitting to themselves, we screwed up really badly and we need to get out of this. Because if we look around at what's happening, the European Union is becoming hollowed out, deindustrialized, our best weapons are failing, and our reputation, particularly as a global hegemon, is in tatters. It's becoming very obvious that our weapons don't work. And this threatens our ability to export those weapons and make a profit off of them. Understand that when the United States has an $880 billion, whatever it is, military budget, almost a trillion dollars, basically, that it spends on everything. And if you add up all the sort of unallocated funds and the intelligence network funds and all the rest of it, you actually come to a trillion dollars worth of spending. Understand that very little of that actually goes to developing effective weaponry. The American way of manufacturing weaponry is something that Ike, Eisen, that Ike himself, Speedy Gonzalez, Eisenhower warned in his farewell speech when he um, handed over to Kennedy. And he said that you must be very, very careful of the military-industrial complex and the dangers that it poses to world safety. And he was absolutely correct. The military-industrial complex in the United States does not exist to produce effective weaponry. Not anymore. It hasn't done for a very long time. It exists to produce expensive, complicated weapons that take enormous amount, um, amounts of maintenance and require enormous degrees of additional contracts and service contracts in order to maintain and use, which is why it costs so damn much. It, it is why Western weapons are so bloody expensive. It's because they're not really designed to be effective. They're designed to make you go back to those same weapons contractors and get service upgrades and maintenance and long-term contracts of those kinds. The F-35 is but the latest example in a long line of screw-ups by the MIC. The F-35 is not an effective weapons program, not even slightly. It's an appallingly bad plane, and I've talked about it many times. I have harangued people about it in my, in my posts. I am just so thoroughly fed up. I'm on the record for six plus years uh, in terms of, you know, saying that this, this thing is just an utter disaster and it is a, a horrific waste of money. It's cost the United States damn near $2 trillion and it's a complete waste of time and space. It doesn't work. It doesn't do what it says it's supposed to do on the tin. Well, you know, that's the F-35. And meanwhile, you have Russian and Chinese-designed warplanes that are not as good. I mean, objectively, they're not as capable, but they don't break down as often. So they're actually more reliable and they're a hell of a lot cheaper. I mean, you compare the cost of a T-80 or T-90 tank. The T-80 is actually probably the best analog. As far as I know, it's not really in production anymore. I think the Russians stopped producing it. But it, it is the closest analog of the M1A3 Abrams today. If you look at the cost of a T-80 versus an M1A3, the M1A3 is vastly more expensive. I believe it's multiples more expensive than a T-80. Is the T-80 a better tank than the M1? Simply by virtue of being more reliable and cheaper? Yes, it is. It may not be better in terms of battlefield survivability, in terms of being able to blow stuff up, in terms of being able to kill things. The M1A3 may well be a better vehicle in those aspects. But in terms of actually being able to be on the battlefield, 
and not require quite as much maintenance, the M1A3 is not as good because the Russians build their vehicles differently. So the, the, the Kissingerite wing can see all of this and they can see that their exports to third countries are deeply threatened because all of these problems are now being exposed. The fundamental economic weakness of the West is being exposed and they realize that they have a massive credibility problem. So they're trying to find an off-ramp. They're trying to find a way out. They're trying to find a, a settlement, a, a negotiated peace that lets the United States walk away with something, some kind of victory, saying, well, you know, Ukraine failed not because of anything we did, but because they didn't share enough intelligence with us. We didn't know what they were doing. They didn't use the weapons properly. They didn't, they weren't trained properly. They wouldn't do what we told them to do. It's a terrible mistake and a terrible tragedy, but we wash our hands of it. You know, Pontius Pilate style, they just wash their hands and, and walk away and everyone's happy. They are not winning, not yet, but there's definitely a tussle between them and the neo-clowns. And it's becoming very visible and very obvious. You can see it in the very schizophrenic way that the United States approaches um, peace negotiations and this issue of more weapons supplies. You know, the State Department says, yes, of course, we're going to supply lots more stuff to Ukraine. And then the Defense Department comes out and says, eh, not so fast. It's, you know, it's not such a good idea. And it's always through the anonymous officials. It's always anonymous officials briefing people and saying, well, you know, we don't think the Ukrainians are really sharing enough intelligence with us. And then it turns out, it transpires that CIA and State Department were actually sharing huge amounts of intelligence with the Ukrainians. Um, and they know exactly what's going on in 404. And the Defense Department is basically trying to cover its arse. So that brings us to the third wing of the deep state. And this is in some ways the most interesting one. It's Treasury and Federal Reserve. Now, it turns out that before the sanctions war started, neither Janet Yellen nor Jerome Powell were really informed of what Bidenopolis, you know, uh, the fake president was planning to do. I, I say Bidenopolis because this goes back to something uh, Alex Christoforo pointed out in a, one of his walking rambles through Athens or wherever it was. And he said that uh, for some celebration of Greek identity or something, Joe Biden was like, yeah, my name's Bidenopolis because he's long associated with the, the Greek contingent in the United States. Something like that, some crap like that. I mean, he's, he's your typical politician, except he's senile and, you know, needs pudding before, uh, before he, he walks on stage. And his brain is pudding at this point, really. So Joe Biden, uh, said that, you know, out loud. And, when it came to consulting people within his own administration, with his own government, I mean, it's a fake government, but within the fake government itself, about how to approach the Russians and how to deal with this issue of sanctions, how to punish Russia, he basically did not consult with the economic advisory team within the, the US government. He did not ask Jerome Powell what the potential impact would be of sanctions, because Joe Biden, the fake president, is almost completely under the control of the neoclowns and has been almost since day one. Understand that Joe Biden is a deeply, deeply compromised man. He is ethically, morally, financially, legally compromised. He is a puppet. Through his children, uh, the Ashley Biden diaries are but the, the most horrific aspect 
of what appears to be an extraordinarily dysfunctional relationship, a very, very evil relationship between a father and, and his children. If you look at that, if you look at uh, the complete screw-up that his son Hunter Biden is and the, the moral abyss that he is, if you look at uh, the way that his daughter Ashley became just a wreck of a human being, and I feel really sorry for his kid. I mean, I really do. They are responsible for their own sins, obviously, but they have turned out so horribly badly. It's actually shocking. And he bears a lot of responsibility for that, and as he should. But he is completely under the control of the neocloud. So he did not consult with his economic team before launching on into these sanctions. And the result is that the United States has sanctioned Russia the world's commodity superpower, to the point where uh, the Russian economy is stronger than it was six months ago. Prices in Russia are falling. The Russian government is awash in money. They have literally no idea what to do with all the damn money they've got. I mean, they've registered record current account surpluses. They're registering far in excess of projected budget surpluses. They are dealing with a ruble that is actually too strong for them. Because all they did was say, well, you're going to pay for your gas and eventually your oil and wheat and everything else that you want to buy from us for unfriendly countries, you're going to pay for it in rubles. And all of a sudden, I mean, the ruble is doing so amazingly well. You know, it went from a low of like 150 to the dollar at one point to 54, 53 to the dollars today. It's stronger than it has been in, since, since before 2014, I think since before the Crimean annexation. They are dealing with a extraordinarily robust economic environment where industry is starting to retool and deal with the sanctions and move beyond them. Consumer demand is picking back up. Interest rates have gone back down to where they were before the war started. And they're seeing more and more consumer demand picking up in the economy. And they're like, how? The Russians are literally sitting there. I mean, they're, they're, they're bewildered by their own success. They're sitting there going, how the hell did that happen? They have no idea. They're like, we should be dealing with a catastrophe right now. And instead, everything's turning up roses. And they're literally, I mean, you can see it in Nabulina's speeches in, in, in the way that Putin talks about things. They're, they're all sitting there scratching their heads, looking around at each other going like, okay, what did we miss? Like, we're not this smart. Like, we must have done something wrong. You know, what are we missing here? What, where, where is the sting in the tail here? What do we, somebody tell us what we're missing because we're not possibly smart enough to do things, everything this well. And that's quite the contrast to what you're seeing in every European capital today, every Western capital, pretty much. Inflation is out of control. The cost of basic living has gone through the roof. People are angry as hell and they want to take it out on somebody. And you're seeing Western leader after Western leader paying the price. It's basically the Zelensky curse. Boris Johnson has lost the trust and faith of many of his MPs, although most of them won't say it out loud. He's lost two major by-elections in Pommy Bastard land. The Estonian government has collapsed. The Spanish government, the left-leaning uh, coalition in Spain, has lost a key regional result in Andalusia. Uh, the Italian government under Mario Draghi is 
looking very shaky. The Brothers Party in Italy is gaining ground. And they're, I mean, you know, people call me right wing. These guys have a reputation for being right wing in Italy that is extraordinarily unsavory, and that's putting it very mildly. The Greeks are getting really pissy. Um, the French are furious, and they've just handed uh, Emmanuel Macron his arse. He's lost his parliamentary majority. The German government is looking shaky. Uh, all up and down uh, throughout Europe, government after government is in trouble. In the US, the fake president is in serious trouble. His approval ratings are at rock bottom, and, and now they're digging. Um, it is a terrible situation. And the funny thing is that nobody in the financial wing, the banking wing of the deep state, was consulted about any of this. And they could have told him, and they did, you know, amongst themselves, they were talking about it. They were basically saying, this sanctions war, if we impose sanctions on Russia, will be a disaster for us. And you saw it most clearly very recently in the testimony that Jerome Powell gave in front of, uh, I forget exactly what it's called, but he was up on Capitol Hill the other day and he was testifying about the uh, inflation crisis in, in the U.S. right now. And one of the congressmen asked him, you know, I forget exactly who he was, some congress critter, I mean, they're all interchangeable, they all need to be fumigated. Um, but basically he said, uh, you know, is the war in Ukraine the reason why inflation is high, or was it high before that? And Powell just chucked Biden straight under the bus and said, no, inflation was high before this war kicked off, which it was. It was high. It was, you know, seven plus percent at the end of December last year. And that is because of record amounts of money printing and deficit spending. I mean, just absolutely biblical amounts of deficit spending. And when you have that much money sloshing around an economy with a tight supply chain that is breaking down at the seams, inevitably you're going to get rising prices. And that's exactly what's happened. So that wing of the deep state said, we're not sure this is such a good idea and we need to get away from these sanctions. And of course, Biden will not listen to them. But here's the interesting thing. Of the three groups in this deep state three-way civil war, which one do you suppose has the most actual power? It's not as simple a question as you might think. Because the neo-clowns, the ideological wing, the globalist wing, well, that's, that's probably the wrong way to describe it, but the, I guess you would call it the visionary wing of the deep state has no reverse gear. None. They control the emotional strings in the US government. They control the levers of positional power. They control who gets promoted and who doesn't, and who lasts for a career in government and who doesn't. And if you don't agree with them, you're on your way out very, very quickly. They are in charge of places like the CIA, the State Department, the, uh, the, the White House, uh, much of Congress, much of the apparatus of government is controlled directly by neo-clowns. And they ensure that only those loyal to the neocon vision will rise up in ranks through those institutions that they control.
So they have the, the lock in terms of ability to regulate people. But it is the military wing or the Kissinger wing. The, the, so you have the visionary wing, you have the Kissinger wing. The Kissinger wing has the, the relationships with the arms manufacturers and with the producers of actual things and the relationships with other countries in terms of their ability to export things. But it is the banking and finance arm, the money arm or the money wing of the deep state that actually possesses the true power. The people who have the money, who control the money supply, who control the ability to distribute the money, are the ones who ultimately will determine courses of action. And I'm not making that up. If you look at the people who have gone to war against central banks, they tend to lose very, very badly. The one time before the Federal Reserve that the United States had a central bank that lasted, really, was the second bank of the United States. And the war between President Jackson and the head of the second bank of the United States determined the fate of the US dollar for generations to come. Jackson remains the only president in history that successfully fought a war, uh, American president in history, that successfully fought a war against a central bank and won. He's the only one who's ever done it. And there's a reason why it was so profound an impact uh, upon the history of the banking system. Because once the second bank of the United States was defeated and its charter was withdrawn and, uh, you know, Jackson basically made sure it could never rise again up until the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. That was it for central banking for damn near a hundred years. But that is not possible anymore. This, the Federal Reserve has so much control and power in the United States that it can crash the economy at will if it wants to. Now, it's not going to. Because doing so would mean impoverishing the very people, the bankers that rely on the central bank and view it as kind of their, their uh, domain. So Powell is not going to do things that upset the Jamie Dimons and the, uh, whoever the, 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 I think there's a woman in charge of Citigroup somehow, which I find shocking. But anyway, um, the head of Deutsche Bank in, in Germany and, you know, I'm not, I'm not joking when I say that. I mean, Deutsche Bank may well be a German bank. They have a huge operation in the United States and they have quite a lot of power within the US. Not as much as Goldman Sachs, which is not, I mean, obviously Goldman is going to be a major player in this, in this regard. Um, but Goldman, JP, Bank of America, um, Wells Fargo, uh, all of the other regional banks, large regional banks, which have a lot of power, these are all going to be very influential with Jerome Powell. And what's happening with them is they are seeing huge disruptions in their ability to access new markets. And they're, they're seeing that, you know, they're able to look into the future. I mean, as, as amoral and as nasty as banksters are, they are capable of looking into the future and seeing where things could go wrong in terms of losing access to markets and losing access to goods and services. And they're not liking what they're seeing. They're terrified of it. 
So what they're going to do is they're going to put pressure on the fake president to essentially try to walk back some of these sanctions. Because if they see that there is a direct competitor open in the banking system to them that is capable of shutting them out of markets where they're trying to get in or they are already established, that's a huge problem for them. A market like Russia's, which already has a robust and strong uh, retail banking sector and doesn't rely on foreign funding and foreign money flows to sustain itself, is not a market where they can do a lot of damage. But a market like China's or a market like India's or many of the Latin American markets, these are markets where the banks want access and they can't get it right now because those markets have some unique characteristics. I mean, if you look at Brazil, for instance, it has a what's known as a non-deliverable currency, which causes a lot of problems, which I don't really want to get into. If you look at uh, Africa's markets and you look at the sheer raw potential of that banking system, if you look at the potential power that a central bank digital currency would have introduced globally to these banks, and I know something about this, if you look at what that would have done, that dream is now dead. The idea of a global CBDC is dead. The only people who are really going to introduce a true CBDC will be the Russians. And they will do it as a digital ruble backed by actual hard assets to facilitate international trade flows and to create a basket currency. It's essentially a reserve currency built on a currency basket. That will allow for alternative trading, which will systematically remove power away from the banks themselves, away from the American and European dominated banks, and will shift that power to new players in the Eurasian continent, which touches back on what I said in my previous podcast about the Eurasian century. You're looking at a tremendous and dramatic reversal of fortune and power which the banking system in the United States and the West is not prepared for. And that is going to drive the banksters absolutely nuts. So look for that wing of the party to exert tremendous pressure on the fake president, up to and including potentially forcing him out of office. Because these are the people that really control the levers of power. Yes, the neo-clowns, the visionary wing of the party controls who gets promoted. Yes, the Kissinger wing promotes or, or controls who builds the relationships with other countries or in, in terms of the commercial relationships, but the banking wing controls the money. And ultimately, the money is what determines who wins and who loses. It is not a coincidence that Goldman has backed Democrat candidates going all the way back you know, to Obama's time. Uh, Goldman donated disproportionately to his campaigns Goldman employees donated to him. Goldman employees made up huge amounts of his staff uh, during his administration. Uh, the same was true uh, during the Bush years and the Clinton years. I mean, the amount of power that these banks have is not funny. It's actually quite frightening. And never forget that the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department are beholden to them completely. So once those entities are threatened, which they already are, I mean, they're, they're seeing a lot of huge structural problems. Once they see that the yield curve is becoming unfavorable to them in terms of the way that interest rates are moving, once they see that their lending portfolios are going underwater, they will turn their resources to getting the fake president out of office 
and installing somebody who can be more easily controlled by them and therefore reducing or blunting some of the worst aspects of the sanctions regimes. Now, you're still seeing a lot of stupidity. I mean, Janet Yellen, her idea of a buyer's cartel is, is biblically dumb. But, you know, what do you expect from a creature of the deep state? These are not, these are intelligent people only in the sense that they, they are intelligent within their own circles. If you look at their ability to think longer term and be intelligent about long term decision making, no, they're not. They're, the deep state exists to preserve itself. It does not exist to better mankind or to help the country or to help anyone really other than its own people. Once you're in the deep state, you're in. I mean, you sell your soul, you get the ticket, you you live a life of comfort and ease as part of the deep state. But the moment you announce that you're not part of it anymore, well, life gets very difficult. So this is what we're looking at. A three-way civil war, which I predict, and this is my prediction, will end or well, not end exactly, but will take its next step through the banking system, through the treasury department, through the, the levers of money, which ultimately determine the levers of power, and will result in pressures upon the political establishment to find an off-ramp. And by that time, obviously, I mean, Ukraine will be destroyed. There, there will be no Ukraine left. But they can see and understand that this this visionary wings, suicidal desire to confront anyone and anything that, that contests American power is going to get the banking system into very, very deep trouble. It's going to make a lot of waves for people who don't like waves. They like predictability. They like money printing. They like, uh, they like everything to be predictable and easy. Banks are very, 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 very good at exploiting pricing differences. And as long as those pricing differences are reasonably predictable and reasonably stable, everybody's happy. But the moment you introduce friction into that system, the banks get very, very antsy. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. So that's what I wanted to cover for today. And I hope that was somewhat illuminating and interesting to people. To be clear, to summarize, there are three wings of the deep state swamp in the United States right now, actually really around the world in the Western world. There is the visionary wing, comprised of the neo-clowns and neo-libs. There is the Kissinger or realist type wing, comprised of mostly the uniform generals and their weapons contractor type buddies. And then there is the money wing, comprised of bankers and treasurers, who are all looking at this, this huge mess through different lenses and coming to different conclusions. And I predict that ultimately the next phase of this war will be determined by how the banking wing reacts to the stimuli that we are seeing right now. That's it for me. Thank you very much, as always, for listening in, for taking the time, uh, and for liking, commenting, sharing, and subscribing. I hope you do that. Uh, please feel free to comment as you see fit. And I will look forward to talking to you next time. This is Didact, and this has been Didactic Mind. Episode 101. Anyone gets the Room 101 reference? Uh, I hope you enjoy that one. Um, the three-way deep state civil war. This is Didact, over and out.